All righty, let's get started here. I invite you to take a seat, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 16, where we pick up in the middle the second missionary journey. There are three journeys relating how the spirit of Jesus through his people, born-again Christians, brought the gospel message throughout the entire Mediterranean world. The book of Acts tells us how Christianity got started. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning, but not without asking God's blessing. So Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts. Just take a moment to pause and to remember that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand and see the truths that you have for us. Speak to us individually. Call us by name and help us to see, Lord, that you have something for us today, something helpful, something of insight. Help us to see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, nothing says Christmas actually like the book of Acts, really 28 chapters of the spirit of Jesus carrying out his very purpose for coming. Actually, the angels said to Joseph, right? Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for she's with child, and it's the product of the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and she's going to have a son, and here's the purpose. Name him Jesus, for the Lord is salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the purpose for Jesus' coming is very clear. He came to save us from our sins. And the book of Acts is all about people being saved from their sins. And so, you know, last Advent time, we were in the book of Revelation talking about the end of the world. And so we opted to go for more Christmas-friendly kinds of topics, <laughs> even though I could make a really good case for Armageddon really being directly uh, related to Christmas because Christmas is an a declaration of war. God has come down to, quote, the reason the Son of God appeared, that would be Christmas, was to destroy the works of the evil one. Yeah, so before I preach that sermon, let me get back to our attention here. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he said, I could sum it up for you in one sentence, the Lord said. Luke 19, 10. The Son of God came to seek and save the lost. Plain and simple. And so we're going to watch how God does that in three very different people and in three very interesting and very different ways this morning here on the second missionary journey. We're going to meet uh, a wealthy businesswoman who has her heart opened. We're going to meet a demonized fortune teller who has her heart purified, and we're going to meet a traumatized prison guard who has his heart filled with great joy. You know what? They're getting saved. They're getting saved from their sins, just like the angel told Joseph. It's Christmas in the book of Acts. It's Christmas every time we open our mouths and share the gospel, because unto us a child has been born, unto us a son given, and his name it's not just a prophet or a good man. Almighty God 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. So we're going to see the signs of Christmas uh, as it sweeps through the Mediterranean. Picking up where we left off, verse 11 of chapter 16. Now from Troas, now we're on a missionary journey. These are places. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in very expensive, by the way, purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of the God of Israel. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home, Luke speaking, Luke a part of the team, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. All right, so the first woman here who is saved from her sins, which is the whole point of the gospel, a wealthy businesswoman has her heart opened with a quiet conversation. Quiet conversation. The word there that they spoke to them about the Lord is not preaching. It's normal conversation. How many of you came to know the Lord through a quiet conversation? Raise your hand. Everybody comes in different ways. It was a quiet conversation. About the same amount of people from first service, about a third of the congregation. And, and uh, there are other ways to come, which we are about to see, but... Before we talk about what it means to have the Lord open your heart so you can respond, very interesting phrase. Before we look at that, uh, let's get our bearings here on the map. What's going on? We're traveling in the second missionary journey, and so you, you'll take a look at that on the screen behind me. You'll remember that the two missionaries now are Paul and Silas. They go back in reverse order to the churches that were established in this region uh, about five years before. Uh, Paul said, hey, let's go check on the new churches and do some new works. And so Paul and Silas get all the way to Lystra where they find Timothy and Timothy joins. Then the three of them start from Iconium wanting to go to Ephesus so badly, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus forbid them a totally good thing, a great desire, but the Lord said, no, closed door. And then they said, okay, well, then we'll go north into Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit said, no, again, and drove them to a dead end, to Troas, to a seaport. And there was no place to go except the water. And so Paul's out there late one night. This is how I imagine it. A night vision comes. All these closed doors, so frustrated, God, where do you want us? Where should we go? And he has a vision of a man begging and saying, come over here and help us, a man from Macedonia. Like George MacDonald wrote, an old uh, Scottish author, Christian author from the 1800s. 
He wrote, nothing makes a man strong like a call for help. And so immediately they concluded, God is calling us to Europe. Now all of this will be Greece. All of this is Greece. And so that is where the verse left that we now pick up now here uh, at the Aegean Sea um, with this call. Who was that man? Oh, by the way, commentators say, was it Luke? Because Luke is from Macedonia. And so maybe, perhaps, he has a vision of Luke saying, come and help us. And then he meets Luke in Troas and he says, man, I, I had a vision of you. And you were saying, come and help. He says, well, I'm from Macedonia. And so the we passages have begun, and now we know Luke is on board. So the four of them now cross Troas to Europe. And they, they hit the island halfway, it's Samothrace. It's about 136 miles of a journey, and they do it one day here, and one day they reach the port city, which is called Neapolis. Now, Normally, that is a five-day journey. So commentators are quick to point out, you know, sometimes God blesses our efforts when we get in line with his will to give us a tangible uh, signal that we've found where he wants us to be. In other words, he uses our natural inclinations. In other words, when things are really, really hard, sometimes, and sometimes the work of the Lord is really, really hard, but when things are frustrating and futile and very little fruit, God wants us to try in other avenues. And so a five-day trip, suddenly they have God's speed and the winds are in their favor and they get to, you know, there's a scripture that's oftentimes overlooked, a miracle. Uh, let me put it up there for you. It says about Jesus getting in the boat. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they're out in the center because it's seven miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, John chapter six, right? Walking on the water and they were terrified, but he said to them, it's me, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. <clears throat> Have you not seen that? He gets in the boat, they're willing to say, hey, Jesus, come on in. We're willing to be near to you. We want you near guiding us. We want you on board. And immediately they get there. And that's the idea, is that when we do things his way, when, when we're like Peter and say, you know what, I'm going to go out fishing. I don't care where I'm supposed to be. I'm just going to do things my way. John chapter 21, frustrating, empty nets all night long. The second time this has happened, and the Lord comes with that beautiful question. While he's just so frustrated, pulling in the empty nets, the Lord calls out, how's this working for you? <laughs> Catch anything? No. What are you going to rub it in for, man? He says, hey, try doing it my way. Try backing up a little bit over to the right side. Just throw your nets over, and guess what? You're going to find a catch. You see, by blessing he knew, oh, I follow, I'm following the Lord, and there's blessing. There's productivity. Yeah, 
That's how God is leading. And so it must have been really nice to say, hey, hey, we found it. We found it after all of that preventing and forbidding through the province of Asia, through Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Finally, they're in God's perfect will there. It must have been a real blessing. Now, Paul and his, his three friends, thank you for that. Uh, Paul and his three friends get inland. Verse 12, they take the Via Ignatia, uh, a Roman road, nine miles to Philippi. Now, the remnants of that road, if you go to, to ne- Neapolis, you will find a remnant of the road. I have a picture of that for you. I told you last week we're going to Europe, right? So I've got to bring pictures. <laughs> the remnant of the Roman road that connects the two seas is still there. And, oh, by the way, the, did you see the port city, Neapolis? This is where he arrives. It's modern-day Greece. My point here is there are thousands of verifiable facts in the Bible. Names, places, cities, rulers, positions, wars, laws, customs, architecture. There's a gabillion ways to verify is this true or not. It'd be really weird if there was no such thing as an island halfway to Neapolis called Samothrace, but there is. And it would be really weird if there's no Philippi found, but there is. And it'd be, how did they get from there to there? It would have been impossible. No, but here's the road. It's still there. Why? Because God's word is trustworthy. Because it's not, it doesn't have its origin in man. It comes from God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says that no prophecy had its origin in men, but men carried along by the Holy Spirit that God spoke through them. So there's this huge uh, uh, push nowadays with New Age Christianity that wants to question everything about the word of God. And here's what they think. If I can discredit the book, then I'm off the hook. Well, you're mistook. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all his precepts are trustworthy. Psalm 111 and verse 17. So the four arrive in Philippi. It is a nine-mile hike on that road from the port to inside Philippi, which uh, Luke points out to you, it's it's an important city. Now, a Roman colony, they were everywhere all over the Mediterranean. And what Rome did was they would tax-exempt retired law enforcement Italians, Romans, to go and live and establish Roman rule. And they'd be tax-exempt and they would be kind of an, an influence. They would be like Rome away from Rome. <laughs> Warren Wearsby. If you don't like it, Warren Wearsby. Check him out. That's where I got that from. Now, uh, so it's an important city. And, uh, you know, Paul's trying to discern where do you want us? The big world. You know, it's an important city. It's a feeder vein, man. Get the gospel there. 
And so he, he gets to Philippi. The first thing, they start looking for a synagogue. Now, in order to have a synagogue in uh, non-Jewish areas, which you had, a lot of them, you had to have 10 Jews, 10 Jewish males. If you don't have 10 Jewish males, you don't have a synagogue. Synagogue just means gathering place. That's what the word means in Hebrew or transliterated Greek. All right, so uh, as a trained rabbi and a former Pharisee from Jerusalem, he could walk in there, he'd be warmly welcomed, and what a great initial place to preach the gospel to folks who are totally familiar with Genesis to Malachi, and they're ready, or they should be ready. So Paul liked to do that. So he went looking for one of those, but he didn't find one. He found uh, uh, an open-air worship service by the river with a bunch of women who worshiped the God of Israel. God-fearers always means they're not Jewish, but they're very interested in the God of Israel. And so that's what he finds, and he sits down and he starts talking to them. Ladies, we have some really good news. I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all people. For 20 years ago, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He was the God-man, ladies. God became a human being. He dwelled among us. People saw him. I myself had a vision of him. He was perfect in every way, and he willingly laid down his life, and he bled and died for you, Lydia, so that you can know the living God and have your sins taken as far as the east is from the west. He's made atonement. You know about the Passover lamb and, and putting our sins on the Passover lamb, and the lamb gets slain, and the blood sets us right with God. Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man, has come, and he is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the whole world. Lydia, you can live forever. You just need to call out and cry out to Jesus. And the Lord opened her heart to respond. Interesting. Lydia is a wealthy businesswoman, uh, very expensive industry there. Uh, she's a God-fearer. She's from Turkey. She's from where Paul just tried to go. Thyatira is back on the continent there of Asia Minor. And, you know, Thyatira is going to become one of the churches, the seven churches of Asia that you find in the opening uh, chapters of Revelation. Who do you think started the church at Thyatira? Lydia is from there. She's going to write home, and she's going to have some fascinating stories to tell about Jesus. She's going to go home for the holidays. And what's going to happen there? There's a little church that's going to start. You know, so praise the Lord. A very telling phrase, though, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Just a beautiful phrase to remind us human beings that of our desperate reliance upon God if we're ever going to see his face and have a pleasant experience at that. Uh, we need God. Not up to us. It's up to him. Well, we have a part to play. We have a free will. But unless God opens the heart, you can do nothing. Now, Jeremiah 17.9 put it really bluntly. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? meaning our sinful selves are naturally antagonistic to the gospel. Uh, plain and simple, I'm going to put up the, the most offensive scripture of the gospel. This is good news, but first the, the bad news. 
As it is written, Paul is quoting now from the Psalms. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands spiritual things. No one who seeks God, no one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. But when we compare all of us among ourselves, you could say some people are good or better than others, but from God's point of view, spiritually speaking, we've been born, stillborn. We've inherited that death in our fallen natures from our father and mother, Adam and Eve, who transgressed against the Lord and died spiritually disconnected. They pass that on to us, and so in that regard, Lydia is dead. Lydia can't do anything, but she has a will that as she says, ah, I want to believe, I'm, I'm yielding, I'm open, I'm listening in such a way, and then God is at work drawing and softening and convicting and convincing, but God is the initiator. What, what a blessing to know that all of us are the recipient of God's favor if you know him or want to know him. Romans chapter two, verse four. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Nobody wants to repent on their own. If you ever find yourself repenting, God is being kind to you. He's leading you. You're not even thinking, oh, I need to repent. He's saying, hey, buddy, don't you think you need to repent? And you're like, hey, I need to repent. It wasn't your idea. <laughs> He helps us because we're that needy. Love John 6.44. Love it. Thank you for that verse. John 6.44 says, Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws. Lydia is being drawn, right? And then in John 14 or uh, John 16, rather, verse 8, it says that the Holy Spirit is the one who has to convict us of our sin, quote, guilt, quote, and future judgment. He's the one who goes down deep and says, man, you in trouble. That's what he says, you in trouble. And then Jesus himself in John 15, 5 says, hey, apart from me, regarding salvation, things of God, you can do nothing without my help. So it was the Lord. I mean, this is love, First John. This is love, not that we first loved God. Come on. God first loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. First John, he just lays it out. So this, this just shows you, hey, I, I don't know how it works. I know I have a part to play. Or you wouldn't say, whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. I gotta do my part. But it's not without God and I working together. He's preaching, I'm listening, I'm wanting. I remember telling a guy on Market and Powell, open air preacher, singled me out. I've told this story many times, but from this point of view, I had already a preaching born again Jewish father who was preaching the gospel. It was rattling around in my head, but I had no intention on ever becoming a Christian. And I told him, he poured out his heart to me. And I said, I believe you. I, it sounds right. Too bad it's never gonna happen. I said, it just can't. I, 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 I don't like the things you like. I, I don't like your music. I don't like the way Christians are. I have no interest. 
I'm not saying I don't believe it. I think you're absolutely life, right, and I'm probably going to perish, just like you said. I said, I wish I could be. I wish I could be. Oh, ho, ho, he heard that. <laughs> Did somebody say they wish they could believe? A few months later, bam, he opened my heart. Now, it wasn't through a gentle conversation. It was more like, a, it's called a battering ram at the door. And I had kind of, in essence, a vision of hell. For me, I needed to smell the fires of hell and have my tail feathers on fire. You know, standing there and I smelled something burning. I'm like, what is that? Oh, whoa, it's me. <laughs> that really was helpful to me. So. She has the evidence of salvation because she wants to be baptized. She wants to tell others, here by the riverside, I've been washed of my sins. The Lamb of God's in the world. He found me. Here I am getting baptized. And she's baptized. And one person who stands up and uh, emboldens others to do the same thing by the sheer force of example. So her household, she's single She's a single businesswoman. She has executive, administrative secretaries and servants and friends and family there. And they all see that and they want to be baptized as well. And she presses the guys and she says, hey, you guys got to stay with me. You know, hospitality, grace. Those who have experienced the grace of God become gracious people. Let me say that again in a different way. Those who experience the forgiveness of God become forgiving people. Those who experience the mercy of God become merciful people because they themselves know all my sins are wiped out. How dare I? How dare I then hold you to an offense? I expect God, past, present, and future, to cleanse me of all my sin. Let me off the hook for every little last thing, every thought, every bad motive, every bad word, every bad deed for a lifetime. But God help you if you offend me, brother, because I'm going to take you to task and I'll never let you forget about it. Lydia says, you got to come into my house. I've been shown hospitality. I've been led into heaven. I've got to let you into my house. You need to share my resources. God has blessed me. Fellas, come on. I'm a seller of purple. <laughs> I make good money. You're going to eat some good food. Come on over. And Paul said, well, in that case. <laughs> and they go over there. Awesome. You know, for me, I just take a look and say, you know, I have some favorite verses out of the book of Philippians. And I'm meeting the first Philippian. The, the woman who was, is going to be seated in a chair when somebody comes in and says, hey, I got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Oh, gather around, let's read it. You know, and he opens up Philippians, but for Philippians chapter one, verse six, I'm confident that he who started a work in you is gonna finish it all the way up to the end until that great and awesome day. He was writing to Lydia first, then to us. It's just awesome for me. Verse 16 to 24, who else got saved and is a part of that church? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Verse 16. Now, once when we were going to the place of prayer, now keep in mind, that's turned into like a little church. It's like a Christian church now, <laughs> all right? 
we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, when the owners of the slave girl realized that God had done a wonderful miracle, they wanted to know all about this most high God. They repented and they said, wow, we need this supernatural power in our own hearts and lives. Nope. (laughs) When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul, miracle or not, and Silas, and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. You hear that? I heard it. (laughs) These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, they always do. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet into wooden stocks. Okay, so. We have met the open, uh, a heart open through quiet conversation, and now we're going to see a heart purified through the power of Jesus Christ. The demon-possessed fortune teller has a run-in with the power of the gospel. Now, you'll notice in verse 16, they're on their way to the little baby church with all these baby sapling Christians. And of course, you think the demons are sitting on their hands watching this? The devil's name means enemy or adversary. And so here's this lady, very intelligent. She has lots of resources and money. She's dangerous. And everybody in the house is following uh, in her footsteps of faith. Oh, we we gotta do something, the enemy says. And so suddenly, it's no surprise to me that we have a pesky uh, vocal tag along harassing Uh, here now. Now the slave girl, all right. She is uh, possessed by a spirit of divination, the King James Version puts it, all right. But in the Greek, it says she's possessed with a python spirit. In fact, in the original language, she's called a pythoness, a female python living inside of her. Ew, right? You can say it, ew. Yeah, I thought so. Now, here's what, here's what was going on. There was a place called Pytho. It was a place where you went to hear the word of Apollo, who was the god of light and truth, who never lied. So people would flock from all over the world to hear the word, the oracle of Apollo from Pytho. 
symbolizing that place was a great she-serpent, a python, that protected that place. And so the python was associated with anybody who was a psychic. So if you could say, I'm a medium or a psychic or a fortune teller or a soothsayer or a witch doctor, they're all the same, by the way. If you could say you were one of those people, you were called a Pythian or a python. You had the python spirit. Now, how very fitting, I should say, here. Now, Luke tells us, Luke adds this just to tell you, look, she was the real deal. A lot of them are sham artists. They don't know what they're doing. They're making stuff up. They're taking, <laughs> they're making very insightful guesses. Uh, they have scams. They manipulate. They're frauds, right? But some of them have the python. They're demon-possessed. They cannot predict the future. Demons don't know the future so much. They know the word of God. They know the book of Revelation. They can make really smart choices about what they think they're going to do because they really know human nature pretty well. And so she was making a lot of money. Buku dollars, buku bucks. The, that's what it says in the Greek. <laughs> a lot of money for her bosses, clearly. But Paul is not flattered. So she's pestering them. Testimony from hell. Testimonials from Satan. These men, let me tell you how smart I am. I know that these men are servants of the Most High God and they're telling you the way to be saved. Well, Jesus didn't appreciate that, did he? He didn't accept testimonials from the devil. In fact, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, but he did not permit them to speak. Silence. They don't need the devil's witness or testimony. Do you not feel the affront? I've, I would feel, how about a serial killer, unrepented, writes you a letter of recommendation. Yeah, you know, oh, that's just what I want. I want some unrepented rapist to say, hey, do you know Ross Ryman? He's such a good guy. <laughs> oh, shut up. I, I don't want any association with you. You know, Charles Manson just thinks you're a great guy. <laughs> that's what's happening here, okay? Second reason she needs to be silenced. He's a liar. But how do you lie the best? How do you deceive? Take a little truth and a little lie. A little truth, a little lie. A little truth, a little lie, you get Mormonism. A little truth, a little lie, you get Jehovah's Witness. A little truth, a little lie, you get the New Age movement. A little truth, a little lie is a lot easier to swallow the lie if it's got a little truth. Where's the lie here? Oh, you don't see it in the English. You only see it in the Greek. These men are telling you a way to be saved. A way? So Paul is constantly have to say, hey, listen, she's saying a way, but Jesus is the way. He's constantly having this true, 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 truth, and then a constant perversion of something else. Paul's constantly having to say, hey, listen, I know you heard this, but actually the gospel is that over and over again, he's feeling grieved. He's feeling grieved for the girl. He's feeling grieved for the church. The church is listening to this. 
Lydia's listening. Lydia's family's listening. And finally, he just turns around and says, look, I'm done with this. In the name of Jesus, Jesus did it this way. I commend you. Paul says, in Jesus' name, come out. And it says, immediately, the spirit slithered away. Ew. I'm not a snake guy. I know I've told you that before. I mean, if I see one on the street and I don't faint and I'm in the car, I will run them over. (laughs) The next morning, and excuse the language here, but the pimps call in their spiritual prostitute. Uh, They don't realize the ATM machine has been unplugged. Hey, how should we invest the money? Uh, Should we travel to Rome or Alexandria? Come on, tell us. Will this be successful or not? And she goes, "Uh, uh, nice weather we're having. Uh, Nothing's coming to my mind. Maybe you should ask Paul and his friends. Well, they didn't appreciate that kind of attitude. Uh, Here's what they did. They got mad. They said, you know what? It's all about the money. We don't care about the most high you mentioned or how to be saved or the miracle of you being now in your right mind. I don't care one ounce about what's right or wrong. Does this sound familiar? I don't care one ounce about what's right or wrong, true or false, if it's gonna cost me something. Count me out. Millions of people are in hell because of this statement. If I pay attention to the miraculous way God's trying to get my attention right now, I'm going to have to stop, fill in the blank, being sexually immoral. Multitudes and multitudes and multitudes will perish because they're ignoring all the miraculous signs around them, creation, Christian testimony, the word of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God has a lot of ways to get to a soul as he was trying to get to these slave owners. And what did they see? The only thing that's important to me is this is going to cost me money. Yeah, did you just see a miracle? Yeah, who cares? I'm going to have to, I'm going to lose money. I got chariots. I got a house on the coast, man. I've got a reputation. I travel in really nice circles. And if I become a Christian, that's all threatened. Or she can't predict the future that I'm out some money. A lot of people turn a blind eye to all God's attention getters just because they know it's going to mean they're going to have to start, fill in your blank, or they're going to have to stop, fill in the blank. That's too bad. Well, so they're really mad. Uh, uh, Gone, gone, gone. All of the luxuries of life that money can buy, um, all because of one command from the mouth of a Jew. Just one sentence, took it all away from me, man. And they're mad. Now, why do Paul and Silas get beaten and called the Jews? Ah, Timothy has a Greek father, and he probably looks like his dad, like a Greek. Um, Luke is a Gentile. He looks like them. The other two can't fake it. You can't fake being Jew sometimes. You just wear it on your face. It's as plain as the nose on your face. <laughs> oh, I could tell you some stories. People just calling me rabbi. Just walking up to me and calling me rabbi. You look like my rabbi. Well, you know what? 
You, you know who you look like. <laughs> All right, here's a paraphrase. These Jews, these guys are Jews. They don't belong here. They've upset the whole city. Hello, we're Roman citizens, man. If we want, a, if we want fortune tellers, we can have fortune tellers. If we want to worship Zeus, we can worship Zeus. If we want to enjoy what they call sexual immorality, we have the legal right. We're Romans. They're coming against a lifestyle that Roman citizens have the legal right to enjoy. We don't need the gospel. We're protected from it with our laws. We're Romans. Do you know how many civilizations have done that? They play that card all the time. It's against the law in China to proselytize, to share the faith, the law. Hey, we're Chinese, man. Be quiet about that, Jesus. We're Chinese, we've got laws against this. In, in Islam, it's a death penalty. Death penalty to tell them the good news. We've got laws. Don't tell us about Jesus, we've got laws. We're Muslim. And it goes on and on and on. It's so ironic too, that our laws, our laws will protect things like abortion, so that you're free to do away with the life God put in a womb. But it will protect the pornographer, right? Laws used to keep the gospel out, but to let other things in that are destructive. We don't need the gospel. We're Americans. Well, there's a price to pay for shining the light into a dark place. Verse 22, uh, we'll teach them a lesson. So they stripped him, severely beat them with rods. Um, I have a picture of a lictor. The lictor from the Latin was the Romans, who this is just a parade, you know, but uh, they carried around rods of wood that had some flex in them. So when you opened them up, it was just a thrashing. The ax was carried as well to show people the, lict- the, the lictors who represented the magistrates and protected them had the right to give you a public corporal beating if you were a troublemaker, and they had the right to execute you. So there's another picture of what they looked like. This is rough. Paul got beaten three times, and they'd stretch you out, strip you, beat you from the feet to the back of the legs and to the back, sometimes your head. Sometimes your nose would be broken, your teeth would be chipped. They'd just pummel you to death. People died of it. Paul says, three times I endured that. And so that's what happened to them. They said... um, Let's beat them up, toss them in jail, make sure they're secured well. Verse 24, they put them in the inner cell. Why? Because, you know, they do have some magical power. They cast out the python, right? And so uh, we're going to take uh, some precautions with them. And then we'll figure it out manana. All right, let's see what happens. So that our third person gets saved, then we'll have communion. About midnight, after a horrendous beating, they're thrown into this prison, About midnight, Paul and Silas, verse 25, were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. 
It's my favorite line. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Uh, what's wrong with you guys? Did they beat you in the, in the vicinity of the head? Because you're singing, and that, that sounds like joyful, and you're singing hymns, and you're praising God and thanking him, but you, know, you just got beat up really bad, so yeah, all right. So the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains, everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. It was a capital offense to let your prisoners escape. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, man. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Was he just the one beating them? He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, implied. 32, and then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, my favorite part, the magistrate sent the officers to the jailer with the order, release those guys, 36. I was trying to make them sound dumb and stupid. All right, <laughs> verse 36. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul says to the officers, to the officers, yeah. He goes to the front door. All right, uh, excuse me, I want a word with you. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're, hello, Roman citizens. Against the law to do that. You could get killed for doing, treating a Roman like that. And threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly, sweep it all under the rug? No way, Jose. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. <laughs> 39, they came to appease them. That word means to offer conciliation or apologies. And then escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. <laughs> After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, then they left. All right, let's finish up. The wealthy businesswoman we've met had her heart opened. Then we had the, the, the demonized slave girl, right? Had her heart purified. And now let's meet the prison guard who's had his heart filled with joy. What a, just one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible was just read to you. Here they are. I've been, they're in tremendous pain. There's no way to describe the pain that they're in. They're bleeding, we find out later, right? They feel isolated from their friends. 
They have broken bones. Their feet are bruised. They're stuck in wooden stalks. The stalks, to pull their legs apart, they're uncomfortable. They're not in nice accommodations. It's dark. It smells in there. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They don't have their clothes on. Just get the picture of this. See the blood. Feel the cold cement they're laying on. The reaction, questioning God and his love, doubting God's promises, having a pity party, wondering where Peter is, probably on the French Riviera, (laughs) preaching the gospel. (laughs) It's not happening. You know what they do? They start singing and praising God, thanking him for the honor. And man, I don't know how it all started, but God went over the top, man. God was pushed. God just lost control. God just, it says there was a mega seismos, mega seismos, a great big earthquake. Well, a violent earthquake, not the kind we're used to. Foundations shake, the bolted iron doors come unhinged, fly open, metal chains are dropping off. It's like a bomb went off in there. The stocks are blown apart. Everybody's, everybody's chains come loose. God was sending them a message. I'm happy with you boys right now. I'm real happy. And this is how I hug people. Boom. <laughs> oh, so they're happy, right? Why would you sing when your whole world turn upside down? You can't even think straight. You're in so much pain. You can't see a thing. You're in total darkness. Why would you sing? Did Silas say, hey, hey, at least they didn't put us on a cross like our Lord. Hey, yeah, they didn't pluck out our beards. They didn't spit in our face like Jesus, our Lord and Savior. But we get to express our love for him. We're like him. It's working. They hate us like they hated him. We must be doing something right. They're trying to high-five each other. And God just says, God just lets loose. It says that's powerful. They're not happy that they're hurting. They're happy that they're serving. They're not thanking God for the pain. They're thanking God in the pain. They're saved. They get a chance to praise the Lord and show him their love. I have a thought written here, and it just says, never again. You know, suffering for Jesus because you make the choice to stand with him or the gospel, uh, you know, it's a limited time only offer. You'll never, ever have that chance again, ever. In all of eternity, you will never suffer again for Jesus' name. You get one window of time where you could say, I'm going to express my faith and love for my Savior and and actually stand up in a way that cost me something. I'm going to lose something. It's going to hurt. Something's going to happen. But it's your only chance now. When we see face to face, that, that, that part of life is over for good. And yes, amen and amen. But you know what? This time of testing is very short. Let's just not shy away from it. 
Let's stand up and know this is the last chance I'm ever going to have to say, hey, let me express my faith by standing up for you in a tough situation. Let me sing when I'm hurting. Let me pray when I'm discouraged. Let me shine so that the others around me are listening and watching and getting saved because they see, I want that kind of life. I want what those guys have. They got the power, you know. It's beautiful. The jailer wakes up. He sees the cell doors blown open, and he thinks, well, I'm a dead man. I might as well. He gets the dagger out, puts it to his own neck. It's pressing. Paul sees an outline. He hears what's happening. He says, man, don't do it. We're not going to leave you like that. Yeah, you beat us half to death, but we're not that way. We're not going to escape. They could have escaped. Paul is leading. He's saying, hey, man, everybody cool. This guy will die if we leave. We can't all run out of here. So this guy is just touched by the grace, the love, the power. The jailer calls for the lights and makes a beeline for Paul and Barnabas. Prostrates himself, fear and trembling. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Well, it's the question they were asking thousands of years ago, and they're asking today. You guys have the truth. You got joy in pain. Your God is real. You got power. I get it. I want it. I'm a sinner. I'm on the wrong side of this equation. How can I be saved? Believe in Jesus. The word believe there isn't to believe there is a God. That's what a lot of people think. The word there is to believe onto, to rely, to grasp, to fall onto, to have a real powerful uh, opening of your heart where the Holy Spirit comes in. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then look at how touching. He brings out water to wash the wounds. And Paul says, here's some water. Let's baptize you and your family. So he washes the wounds and the Lord washes his sins away. Just a beautiful, touching moment. He brings them into his home, sets a hot meal before them. It's three o'clock in the morning. They're all filled with joy. They're all talking about the Lord. You know, they're cleaning up the bandages, cleaning up the blood and all of this. What a difference a little praise made, huh? What a, what a difference. Instead of taking the natural inclination to get all bent out of shape and all about yourself and your big pity party, to just praise God by faith and watch all heaven break loose. Wow, what a powerful weapon. Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat facing army after army after army gets together, says, let's wipe Israel off the face of the map. Nothing new there. And so uh, the Lord prophesies through somebody, says, hey, man, this is not your battle. This is my battle. You guys, you know, guys have to do a thing. They go into battle, praising the Lord, singing a hymn. God is good and his love endures forever. The whole army, they're unarmed. <laughs> they go into battle and the Lord is so pleased, he turns the armies against each other and they wipe each other out. And Israel's just praising the Lord. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. They're just singing. I want to suggest to you, the next time you're kind of all bound up, you're in the dark, you're all hurting, 
How about a little worship time? How about sending God into this thing where he just, ah, I'm going to bless them and an earthquake that just shatters the chains, sets you free and those around you. I've got a question. Um, Oh, let's talk about it, Paul's attitude, because I love it at the end. You know, the guys show up and they, they knock on the door. Hey, tell those guys they can go. So Paul says, uh, uh, excuse me, I'd like a word with you. He says, uh, excuse me, uh, you arrest and beat two Roman citizens publicly without a hearing, throw us into jail, and now you think you can sweep it under the rug? I don't think so. You tell them that they can come down here and escort us out to the city gates. So they go back and they say, hey, boss, these guys are Roman citizens. What do you mean? How's that possible? They cut the little thing. We're going to get killed for this. So they go down, they're alarmed. They come back and they, they play nice. They apologize and they walk them out. And then they request, hey, we want you to leave the city. But notice they don't leave the city. They go back to the church first and encourage the church. And then they leave <clears throat> on their terms. Just a wonderful thing. I do have a closing little remark, a little reflection I want you to think about. Why didn't Paul and Silas use the passport at the beginning a, there might not have been time to do that. But B, they were prompted probably to withhold that information that could have spared them by the Holy Spirit. They had to go in the jail to get to the jailer and all those prisoners who got saved and all the souls in the man's family. Prompted to lay down the right and suffer so that I can use you to bring life over here. That's interesting. I saw it happen in my own life, going through the bone marrow transplant. After a couple months at UCSF, I was really ready to go home. And uh, things were going well. After I received my stem cells back, they needed to graft. I had no blood of my own. I was living on other people's blood, and I had my own stem cells now injected back. They said, you know what, buddy? As soon as your stem cells graft and start producing blood cells on their own, you can go home. So every day they check my blood. Now this means I could go home, and I knew in my heart I would be cured. I'll never have chemotherapy again, no more radiation, no more cancer. It'll be a distant memory if I could just get out of this room. All I need is for them to come in and say, it's grafted. The cells are growing. It's working. Every day. No, no blood cells. No replication. No grafting. One week. Two weeks. Now they're talking about blood failure. Blood What's the name of what I was just talking about? Blo bone marrow failure. If it doesn't graft, you can't make blood. And you can only live on other people's blood so long, they just let you die. I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Come on, God, I just want to get out of this hospital. Two days before I started creating my cells. 
I met a couple in the waiting room where I was walking with my stuff. Said, yeah, we're here. Right across the hall is the uh, neurology department. My dad is here. He had an aneurysm. They flew him in from actually Reno. They're operating, but it doesn't look good. So two days later, he comes into my room, and he says, you're a pastor, right? They want to take my dad off life support. We want you to come and pray before we take him off life support. The, two, the couple, not, a, not Christians, all the families gathered. I'm waiting. Get me out of the hospital. Get me out of the hospital. Get me out of the hospital. My cells started replicating. The nurse was late and kept delaying. I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm, I'm trying to get dressed. I can't get dressed. I can't get my clothes. I want to get out of the hospital. Delay, delay, delay. He walks in. He says, it's time. Will you come? I'm in a gown. Hospital gown. <laughs> It's all, all my stuff's still there. I said, I'll come. So I go and I leave my ward and go into the neurology wing. They pull back the curtain. Ton of family. This is a pastor. He's going to pray for us. He's going to share a little bit to comfort our hearts. There I am, my swollen face, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, no facial hair, swollen in a hospital gown, holding my stuff. And I pray, and I share the gospel. They're crying, they're open. They pulled the plug. But I was there, shared the gospel. Responses, tears. And on my way back, as soon as I walked through the door, the nurse is there. Mr. Ryman, where have you been? We've been waiting for you. It's time for you to be released from the hospital. Don't you want to go home? Here are your clothes. Let me unhook all the things. As soon as I walked through the door, the Lord says, I needed you to wait patiently in an uncomfortable place because I had somebody who needed to hear the gospel. I needed you to sit still and stop complaining and start, stop pushing and stop trying to manipulate and trying to make this thing go away. It's not going to happen. Just sit there. And then he comes and he makes a way. Paul could have got a the get out of jail card, but he didn't because he sensed, Silas, we've got to go through this. God's got somebody who needs some, some help. You want to take a beating so somebody can be in heaven? You want to take a beating so somebody could be in heaven? You want to have a bone marrow transplant so somebody will be in heaven? Yeah. It's all right. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these three lives. One day we'll see and hear the story with our own ears in eternity. We thank you for this wonderful passage and the truth found in there. Speak to our hearts now, Lord, as we participate in communion and remember the motivation for all good things is the death of Christ on our behalf. Help us to be mindful of your great suffering and help us 
to be willing to suffer with you if need be. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the brothers are coming. We're going to uh, take communion or the Lord's Supper as it's called. If you are a born-again Christian, you're welcome to uh, participate with us. If you are not wanting to uh, receive the symbols, the bread and the cup, then simply decline being served. There's no problem with that, but we do ask that you know the Lord and that you are a Christian in order to uh, receive the emblems, as we call them. All right? So here's what's going to happen. You'll get the cup and the bread together. Hold on until we come back and we pray together over them. We'll eat them and we'll dismiss. The worship team is going to sing a song for us to reflect while we're being served. And uh, I just want you to remember one thing. So I know the guys are moving around, but try to, try to listen to this one thing. The reason you can sing when you're hurting is because of what Jesus did for us. Just remember his suffering and it'll motivate you to do things that you could never do without reflecting on his great sacrifice on your behalf. Amen.